Hi, this is DebtWire Managing Editor Andrew Ragsley, and we are up to episode 17 of our DebtWired series. This episode features Deputy Editor Rashmi Basu speaking with Michael Ewald, Global Head of Private Credit at Bain Capital Credit. Michael has been with the firm since 1998 and has developed portfolio management expertise in the middle market and direct lending arenas. In our discussion, he runs through Bain Private Credit Group strategy in response to the pandemic, the BDC market, how private credit markets performance stacks up against the public market, and he also delves into the question of is leverage too high and how is ESG impacting strategy? Michael, thank you for being here. Of course, Rashmi. Thank you very much for the uh, for the invitation. Happy to spend the time with you today. Can you tell us about the private credit group at Bain Capital and your investment strategy? Did you adjust your strategy in response to the pandemic? Sure. You know, the, the private credit group actually dates back to the founding of Bain Capital Credit uh, as Sankey Advisors, the, the Bain Capital debt affiliate, back in 1998. You know, our initial uh, mandate was really focused on, on mezzanine or junior credit, but we expanded pretty quickly into senior direct lending in the middle market as well. And, uh, and we really grew that business a lot post, post global financial crisis. So today we've got about eight billion of uh, assets under management. About six and a half of that is senior and a billion plus is junior capital. You know, in terms of switching our approach part of the pandemic, what I tell you is we actually switched our approach back in call it 2017, 2018. The economic recovery back then was was certainly a little bit long in the tooth, I'd say, right? And so we started to trend a little bit more defensive, investing in companies in the in the healthcare space, technology space, business services, things like that. And I think by the end of, of 2019, that's probably a widely held view. And it's probably a little trendy to say that we were towards the end of the economic cycle there. So look, we came into the pandemic prepared for a downturn. What I would tell you is that we certainly didn't expect a pandemic to actually be the catalyst for that downturn. How do you define mid-market? And why do so many investors have a different definition of the asset class? <laughs> Another great question there. Look, the um, the middle market has become attractive in general, I think, because in in a low yield environment, you can get a or receive an illiquidity premium for illiquid loans. You would probably want to gravitate towards that, right? And so the middle market has become very attractive and people have certainly attacked it in different ways. And as a result, there's a bunch of different definitions. And I think Middle market, direct lending, private credit, all those terms get, get thrown around a fair bit. But what I would argue is the core middle market where we participate and where we've really been active for over 20 years now is in companies with, call it 25 to $75 million of EBITDA. Uh, in fact, across our both our junior and our, our senior investment strategies in the middle market, our average EBITDA is right around um, 46, 47, 48 million. So pretty consistently within that core middle market. How did the onset of COVID last year impact the mid-market? And relatedly, what are you seeing now in terms of trends as the recovery continues to take shape? Yeah, I think that there's a few things that really happened post-pandemic outbreak last March. First, for existing portfolio companies, liquidity really became the immediate focus. Revolvers were drawn, delayed draw term loans were drawn, CapEx plans were delayed, hiring plans were delayed all in the uh, in the name of really maintaining liquidity. It's hard to actually cast our minds back 18 months ago, but it was certainly, 
a lot was uncertain at that point. And so we didn't know how long this was going to last. And so the focus was really on making sure companies could make it through to the other side. And I have to give, quite frankly, the management teams a lot of credit here. It was a more of a slow burn in the global financial crisis where arguably management teams might not have reacted as, as quickly. But here, the teams definitely were, were very focused on preserving that liquidity right away and, and just reforecasting results and trying to figure out with a shutdown of indeterminate length how much liquidity would be needed to, to get through that. Secondly, for, from a New Deal perspective, it was very limited, clearly, in the second quarter of last year. Add-ons started becoming a thing, though, as some of the smaller, weaker competitors were faltering. An existing portfolio company might try to uh, to try to snap those up at, at favorable prices. And so that really started happening in the third quarter after some covenant resets based on results kind of halfway through the year. And it wasn't really until, I'd argue, the, the fourth quarter, really, where, where new deals were back in force. And happily for us as lenders, a lot of those terms and the documents tended to be very lender friendly. So I would say fast forward to today, there's still some concerns around the pandemic. Obviously, there's the Delta variant out there, questions around vaccination rates, that sort of thing. But the market's still been fairly robust despite some labor and and inflation pressures. I think looking forward a little bit, there might be some pressure on sellers to transact sooner rather than later because of the anticipated tax changes in the U.S. specifically. We'll see if those come to pass, but in the meantime, it's certainly got folks thinking about sales in the short term. Sadly, though, terms have really reverted back to where they were pre-pandemic. How has the private credit asset market grown in size in recent years? How would you compare its performance versus the public credit markets? You know, it's interesting. I, I would say it's definitely grown. It's hard to quantify, though. You know, it's, it's called private credit for a reason, right? A lot of the information ends up staying private. You know, I think you do see a lot of press regarding the upper middle market specifically, especially mega unit tranches and things like that. So you certainly see some growth there where some of the larger direct lenders might be taking some share from the uh, syndicated market. You know, I think from a performance perspective at the portfolio company level, Performance actually held up pretty well, notwithstanding the fact that a lot of businesses were closed for uh, several months last year. Clearly, defaults spiked last summer in the middle market as well as elsewhere, but they really come back down now. And if you look at our publicly traded BDC, BCSF, we actually have zero companies on non-accrual right now, meaning all of our portfolio companies are, are paying their cash interest expense. So you know, generally speaking, though, I would say the private credit market's a lot less volatile than the public markets, and you can look at asset pricing last spring and see that where the public markets definitely oscillated a fair amount. The private markets held relatively firm, which was certainly good to see. Has it become more challenging to find attractive investment opportunities given how tight spreads are? Where are you finding opportunities? Yeah, another great question. Look, I'd say yes and no. I'd say competition in the private market comes in waves a little bit partly based on you know who may have raised more money uh, recently uh, or not. But I'd say there's there's generally pretty steady demand there. Spreads have certainly tightened a, a lot in the public markets. They've approached pre-pandemic levels in the private markets, but there's still a premium there. And that premium is, is often known as an illiquidity premium. Since you can't sell private securities, you need to be paid more to hold them. And, and that difference is really still holding up. And so it is still an attractive market, I think, overall within the, uh, within the private space. You know, for us, we're industry agnostic. We cover basically most industries somewhere within the Bain Capital Credit platform, and we're able to pull on those resources and, and be able to look at deals uh, across the economic spectrum, which I think is helpful. 
The other thing that's helpful for us is that we really have a, a global outlook, and my team is actually global too. So I've got team members on the ground in Europe. I've got team members on the ground in, in Australia as well. And so we're able to shift our investment strategies across the globe as we see relative value be more attractive in one region versus another. And as an example, we've actually seen Europe be particularly attractive so far here in 2021 versus, uh, versus the U.S. Fed policy created access to easy money. Is there too much leverage in the private markets? Do you worry about an increase in default rates? You know, a lot of people will point to the fact that leverage levels today are back to where they were pre-global financial crisis, therefore the implication being, you know, we're about to hit another crisis, right? I think there's a few other data points, though, that, that, that bear some observation there to make you feel a little bit more comfortable about leverage levels today. You know, one is leverage levels today have, have seen a much slower rise versus pre-GFC, where Within two years, leverage levels almost doubled. Here, it's been a sort of a, a slow and steady increase to the levels where we are today. So that makes you feel a little bit better that we've taken some steps, if you will, gotten comfortable and taken the next step. I think the other thing that's important, actually, is that the debt that's represented by that leverage is actually a lot more affordable today. Certainly in the senior space, the vast majority, 99% or so of loans are floating rate. And if you think about the, the base rate today, which is typically still LIBOR, although it's obviously changing... Yeah, that's measured in basis points. You have plus or minus 10 basis points these days. Might be hard to remember, but back in 2007, LIBOR was about 500 basis points, right? So interest on the same amount of debt cost about twice as much back then as it does today. And then finally, you know, the other thing that we look at a lot too is not just leverage, but actually loan to value, which in our minds is another, another metric of risk uh, in a particular portfolio company. Back in 2007, 2008, private equity sponsors were paying seven to eight times for four companies, and we might lever those five and a half times. So loan to value was 60 to 70% or so. Well, today, they're paying closer to 10, 11, 12 times for those, and we're still levering them five and a half turns. And so the loan to value today is only 50%. Now, I can't tell you whether the, the right number for, for, for valuation is seven to eight or 10 to 12, but what I do know is that Again, sponsors are writing actual cash equity checks behind you that are much bigger today than they were back then. So I actually feel okay with where leverage levels are today. What are you seeing in terms of credit documentation? Are lenders able to get lender-friendly protections or are companies dictating terms? Yeah, I think I'd describe the market today as, as balanced. I would say back in 2018, 19, yeah, again, I mentioned things were, were still pretty frothy back then. I would argue that documentation probably moved to be a little bit more company or borrower friendly. Just pre-pandemic, as, as, as more and more people were starting to think that the economic cycle was coming to a close, I'd say terms were a little bit more balanced. Post-pandemic, immediately post-pandemic, so the end of last year, beginning of this year, I would say terms are a little bit more lender friendly where we could um, have tighter covenants, have covenants at all. We could have tighter restricted payment baskets. We could have less ability to move assets around within the borrower's structure. But I'd say now that we're heading into the, almost into the fourth quarter here of 2021, I'd say uh, we moved back to sort of a balanced posture between company or borrower and, uh, and lender. How would you characterize deal activity in the first half of the year? And what is your outlook going into Q4 21? Well, look, certainly hope springs eternal, right? So I, I hope there's going to be a lot of activity in Q4 here. But, you know, if you play the tape back a little bit, I would say it was a pretty frothy Q1. 
certainly a lot of pent-up demand from last year, even though Q4 was actually pretty busy last year as well. I'd say Q2 and into Q3 here so far, I'd say it's been steady, but I do, again, expect a lot of activity going into Q4, partly because, you know, activity is always fun, right? But also partly because of some of these tax considerations I was mentioning earlier, where sellers might be more inclined to sell now, even at a lower price, and then they might get for another year of growth, because the tax burden that they may anticipate could be higher if they wait. So I think there will be a fair amount of movement in the fourth quarter. We saw something similar probably about five years ago when there were threatened increases in tax rates, where all of a sudden a lot of, especially founder-owned companies or family-owned companies, would actually actively try to sell themselves. What is your outlook for the mid-market? Where do we go from here? Yeah, look, it's a great question as well. I think you're going to see continued innovation, I think, in the middle market. Historically, it's been very focused on traditional sponsor-backed lending. There's also been some some asset-backed lending or equipment-based lending that's been, I would say, probably relatively cookie-cutter. I think what you're starting to see more now is a little more venture-type lending, so lending to companies in, in earlier life stages as they progress through. So I think you'll end up seeing a little bit more of that. There's some more lending against annual recurring revenues, so software companies that, that have subscriptions that, that renew annually, where you can get a little more comfort in the forecast. You may not have seen as much direct lending in, in spaces like that because the asset base isn't quite as, as clear, the collateral base, if you will. But I think with continued innovation, continued growth in the segment, that's what you're going to see. You'll still see that base sponsor back business, but I think you'll see a little more innovation from that standpoint. I think the other thing you'll probably see is continued competition at the upper end of the market. So companies with called $100, $150 million of EBITDA, where there's going to be continued competition with syndication banks for large mega unit tranches and things like that as well. Bain Capital Credit also has a publicly traded BDC, which you oversee. How would you characterize the current environment for BDCs? What is your outlook for the BDC sector? You know, I, I think it's hard to look at BDCs in isolation today specifically. You know, I think what you've seen over the last five years or so is a lot of broader direct lending platforms adding a BDC as one wrapper, if you will, uh, or one fund type to a much broader platform of investment vehicles. So it used to be that if you had a BDC, that was your only vehicle for investing. Now it's part of, of a much bigger investment program. And in a sense, I think that's probably professionalized the BDC sector to some degree. So I think it's a great way for retail investors actually to access this asset class because it, it's much more available rather than your typical limited partner, general partner type structure. It does provide that steady stream of income to that retail base. It also shouldn't be as volatile uh, from a share price perspective. So I think it's certainly a product that's here to stay. And I think it's a product that's here to stay as part of, again, a, a broader platform for a lot of alternative asset managers. Can you share one or two of the most interesting deals you have worked on? <laughs> you know, the um, it's one of the things I, I love about the middle market. There's a lot of companies here that you would never think of existing, but you realize after you learn about them that, of course, they exist because, of course, you know, XYZ product or service is needed, which is often an input to something else, right? But, you know, if you think about just, uh, it's hard to pick favorites here, but you think about just over the, the, the past two days, I've either had deal check-ins or approvals on a host of different companies. 
a consumer packaging company, for example. There was a uh, business services company that, that's, that's focused on visa applications. There's a highly specialized chemical distributor. Um, there was, uh, let's see, there's a company that, that does liquid waste disposal. And actually, liquid waste disposal reminds me of probably argue one of my favorite portfolio companies ever. And that is one that was in actually in the porta potty business, if you can believe that. And our insight there was that while the company was selling itself as a company with a lot of assets and that it had a lot of porta potties, um, that actually wasn't the value. Because if you think about that, it's actually, if you had to foreclose on that collateral, that would entail you getting a very large truck and having to go around a bunch of different neighborhoods picking up a bunch of porta potties, which probably isn't particularly efficient, right? Our insight there was actually that it's really a root density business. It wasn't really an asset back loan. Being the largest porta potty business in the United States actually is not an impressive statistic. It's having that hyper local market share that really drives profitability because you need to service these porta potties. You need to go around all these porta potties and you need to make sure that you can try to tack on one more service stop to, uh, to your technician. And that's really what drove that business. What macroeconomic concerns do you have? What economic indicators are you paying close attention to? You know, I, I mentioned inflation earlier. You know, that, that's certainly something that we're focused on. Relatedly, labor cost increases as well. Certainly talked to our portfolio companies. We found it's been hard to retain employees and it's been hard to, to, to find employees actually when they do have openings. And so they've had to increase uh, rates they're paying. So even beyond what they're paying, though, the bigger concern for me is almost the availability of labor in the first place. I mean, there's literally just unfilled spots, regardless of what you're willing to pay. It's been hard to, to fill some of those. So that's certainly something that we're looking at very carefully. You know, the other one is around supply chain. I think it's probably been well documented in the press that, that it's been fairly challenging and difficult out there to make sure the right containers, the right ships, the right trucks are in the right places because everything just kind of shut down about a year ago. And so if you look at some of the spot prices for shipping containers or for truckloads, they have spiked incredibly high. And it doesn't seem like there's any near-term catalyst to actually reduce the pressure on the supply chain. So we're certainly looking at that pretty carefully, too, because there's only so much price you can pass on to your end customer at the end of the day. In some cases, you might just have to absorb some of those increased supply chain costs. ESG has emerged as a buzzword in Wall Street. Are you seeing ESG adoption grow in private credit? How is this shaping your investment strategy? You know, you have to be careful, I think, within the private credit space regarding things like ESG considerations, because you may well control your tranche, uh, your debt tranche, but you actually don't control the company and your investment's typically a liquid. And so if you don't like what's going on at, at a company from, from an ESG perspective or otherwise, you can't just sell out of it. And so you have to be very focused on, on these sorts of concerns from the get-go. So yeah, I like to think that all along, we Bank Capital have always been ESG aware, if you will, but we've certainly become much more ESG focused in the past several years here. You know, as a private partnership, we have the luxury of saying no more often. We're not necessarily beholden to public shareholders or analysts who clamor for things like asset growth and, and things like that. And so we tend to say no when we see things that, that aren't, that we don't like that are happening at a company. But we, we try to get a little bit more serious about it and codify a lot of these these ESG considerations. A few years ago, we actually hired an ESG analyst just for the credit business. We've since hired them in uh, in other business units across Bank Capital and actually hired a senior person to oversee those efforts across the different business units. And the focus there is, is certainly 
on our private credit investments, but also on on what we can do better ourselves within Bain Capital. So, you know, on, on the on the private credit investments and portfolio companies, what we've done is we've really incorporated an ESG analysis into all of our investment committees uh, going forward. So there's actually always an ESG rating and we have a scoring system for all of our new investments. We also took the time earlier this year to actually go back retroactively to all 199 portfolio companies that we had already in our portfolio and actually rate those. And I think what we, you know, what's important there is we have a number of tools and, and checklists and things like that to actually rate them. But one of them is not just company specific, but actually sponsor specific. So we actually maintain a scorecard now on each of our sponsor relationships. And that goes into the overall ESG score for any given investment. Um, but I mentioned that again, at, at Bain Capital, we're also focused on what we can do. And, and carbon emissions is certainly an obvious one. And we've been uh, looking at ways to reduce those across the complex. But, you know, even taking this this office shutdown that we've all experienced and getting rid of all plastic water bottles, getting rid of all paper coffee cups in our offices, things like that are, are certainly great ways to reduce waste and, and, and try to do our part, you know, even on, on a small localized level as well. You know, the, the thing I, I would point out is that we do see some differences in terms of attention paid, especially by our own investors, to ESG concerns uh, around the world, really. If you think about Europe, for example, they're very focused there on climate considerations. So, so the E part of ESG is very important to them. In the US, you see a lot more focus on the S and the G, effectively, and, and things like DE&I uh, efforts. Um, and, and so we're making sure that we're paying t- attention to all those uh, uh, really around the world. Michael, thank you so much for being here with us. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to spend the time with you, Reshmi. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast with Michael Ewald. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify. You can also check us out on the Wistia platform.